Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to create a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a prefix meal for pickup. Welcome to episode number five of Last Call with Richard Krauss, the podcast dedicated to remembering the tales and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks, and now I'm slinging stories. Household names like Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Fred Astaire have all decorated the bar at the Frolic Room, but the last great dive bar on Hollywood Boulevard is most often associated with another well-known name, Charles Bukowski, writer, gambler, atheist, combative drunk, Los Angelian, the legendary drinker time called the Laureate of American Lowlife, and Salon dubbed the human embodiment of a raised middle finger was a beer and a shot of whiskey regular there. Liquor's like a symphony or like a classical song or something. You don't use it as a downer, you use it as to leap up into the sky or when you're in pain or when you're, we have depression. You use it to, to get yourself out of the common I'm so tired of people who are sober every day. I can't understand people who are just walking up and down sober, and they, they live and they die their lives, they never get drunk, they never get sick, they never have hangovers, they just go around drinking fruit juice, eating eggs, bacon, uh, cauliflower. They never get up, they never get down, they never get sick, they never get high, they never go crazy. These days, a portrait of Bukowski hangs behind the cash register, and it's not unusual for customers to pay tribute to the boozy wordsmith by reciting one of his poems, his odes to poverty, booze, sex, or the grind of a working life, to the crowd in the cramped bar. I'll tell you the story of the Frolic Room, which includes a connection to one of the most confounding mysteries in Los Angeles crime history, the rumor that the ghost of Howard Hughes haunts the mirror behind the bar, and some really cool wallpaper. Before we get to that, though, I want to share a couple of interview bites with you. First, let's meet T. Cole Newton, owner of two great bars in New Orleans, the 12 Mile Limit and the Domino. He's also the author of Cocktail Dive Bar, available now wherever you buy fine books. I asked him to define what a dive bar is. A dive bar is one of those things like like pornography. You kind of know it when you see it. There's no standard definition. I don't want to I don't want to create the impression that I'm somehow like I wrote a book about dive bars because I own something that I consider to be a dive bar, but not everyone considers it to be a dive bar. And it's a nebulous term. There's not like a concrete thing. But I think one of the common factors that people identify with dive bars seems to be that what you're describing is that it's a it's a community hub in a way that it's it's sort of it, it there's an, a dynamic interplay between the neighborhood in which the bar is situated and the bar itself. And it becomes sort of a, a, a gathering place and an extension of people's homes in a very real and meaningful way that people feel like they are at home when they are at their neighborhood dive bar. Yeah, I always think of them as that third space. We have our workspace, we have our home space, and then for some people, the third space is a gym or a coffee shop or whatever it may be. But a bar to me is the third space. It is a place that fulfills parts of the need that you have in your life uh, in ways that goes just beyond booze. And uh, Mm -hmm. for some people, it's about the booze. 
But uh, for other people, it is just about being part of a thing in the neighborhood and having a place to go where people are going to be nice to you, generally speaking. <laughs> by and large although i do think there is some uh, a, a lot of bars top like different types of bars i'll feel i'll fall victim to this dive bars aren't um excluded is that there is sometimes a real air of exclusivity like if you walk into a dive bar for the first time and you don't know everyone else there yeah. and you might get a little side eye from the bar it's like oh who's this noob you know <laughs> there's there can be a bit and you, you have to break into that club a little bit sometimes yeah. in dive bars and there's different like every type like if you're in a sports bar there's a cult of exclusivity around being knowledgeable about sports if you're in a cocktail bar there's a cult of exclusivity about being um knowledgeable about cocktails same with a wine bar there's sort of an assumed knowledge and the assumed knowledge in a dive bar is the community that you're that you should know everyone there that like if, if a bartender doesn't already know your name, are you really going to be made to feel welcome? And a good dive bar, yeah, or a good bar of any kind, you can break through that and make it an accessible experience for people, regardless of the knowledge that they come in the door with. Um, but not everyone feels welcome immediately in a bar that they haven't been in if it's in someone else's neighborhood. That was T. Cole Newton. Now let's hang with F.J. Lennon. He's a novelist, screenwriter, and independent digital media executive producer, designer, and writer. In his book, Soul Trapper, the main character, a rogue ghost hunter named Kane Price, is a regular at the Frolic Room. And, as you'll find out, F.J. spent his fair share of time there as well. There's spirits all over Hollywood Boulevard, but I, I think that place is just a magnet for it. It's, it's a good place. It's one of those places I always felt like, um, if, you, if you find your way there authentically, then you belong there, mm -hmm. you know? I think it calls out and sees who, you know, who will, who will take the bait, who will come. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think life becomes interesting once that place has blessed you, you know, call me a romantic Hollywood guy, but I, I believe that, you know, but you know, on any given night you go in there, you could be sitting next to a junkie, uh, a, you know, a hooker, uh, a movie star, uh, everything in between. And everybody is, is pretty cool. A true story. One night I was there and there was a guy sitting next to me at the bar and he was, he was, a, he was a kind of an actor, stand-up comic. And he was a bit of a loose cannon. And, um, and you could tell, you know, he had issues, he had issues. And, um, but at the same time in the very corner by the murals and the chairs was, it was Brad Pitt just sitting by himself drinking bourbon right and um just sitting there by himself this is probably i don't know 2005 or six right maybe four and um it's funny because that guy that you know i connected with that guy on facebook i was sitting next to he ended up committing suicide years later mm -hmm. and you know it's it's just what you said you're on the way up or the way down and that night represented both i mean brad pitt was already big man yeah but he's gotten even bigger you know and nothing can stop that train um from going up mm -hmm. but you know there are a lot of people at one o'clock in the morning in the frolic room on a weeknight that are you know that are hurting you know um so you just got to respect all of that you know and uh and accept it all you know the bartender is a you know he's, he's a good guy he he runs a good tight ship, but, you know, people don't get out of hand. Then. I mean, um, it's always like this weird mixture of people 
that seem to cohabitate pretty peacefully. And I don't know that you have that anywhere else. There's lots more with T. Cole Newton and F.J. Lennon later on at the after party, right after I tell you the story of the last great dive bar on Hollywood Boulevard. Let's set the scene. The street name Hollywood Boulevard comes loaded with glamorous connotations. Movie premieres at Grauman's Chinese Theatre with limousines lined up around the block and searchlights pointed skyward, announcing to the stars, both movie and astral, that movie magic was being made here tonight. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are now in the famous forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Any attempt to describe the setting here tonight would necessarily give only a very limited idea. Grauman's Chinese Theatre this evening is a mecca for the elite of Hollywood. There are celebrities attending this premiere from all over the country. Hollywood Boulevard is ablaze with light. Thousands of people down the sidewalks and the street in front of the theater and here in the forecourt. Or maybe it puts you in the mind to enjoy a smart drink at Musso and Frank, the oldest restaurant in Hollywood and second home to everyone from Dorothy Parker and Brad Pitt to F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Clooney. Or the lobby of the golden age of Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, said to be haunted by the ghosts of Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery Clift, and Errol Flynn. Dubbed the main street of the movies for decades, it was a landing spot for out-of-towners with dreams of stardom dancing in their heads. But reality rarely syncs up with the hype. The boulevard, like the stardom enjoyed by the bold-faced names who once promenaded up and down the thoroughfare, is a fickle thing. Ever-changing, the street began life as a regional shopping district, but soon the proximity of the major movie studios created a taste for high-end stores and amenities where newly minted movie stars could indulge in shopping, sex, drugs, and, well, maybe not rock and roll, but absolutely everything else. In 1960, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce came up with the plan to embed five-pointed terrazzo and brass stars in the sidewalk along 15 blocks of the boulevard. Called the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the idea was to, quote, maintain the glory of a community whose name means glamour and excitement in the four corners of the world. By the 1970s, the number of Walk of Fame stars had swollen to the thousands, but the glamour was gone. In 2004, Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss told me about her new store, Hollywood Madam, which has since closed, and her history with Hollywood Boulevard. So many people come from other countries, other states, because they see, think of Hollywood and Hollywood and Vine, Marilyn Monroe on a on a drugstore counter that you're going to be be discovered and be, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and whatnot. But really, you come down here, there's a bunch of panhandlers, freaks, and you think you might get pickpocketed. But sometimes people would say, oh, you know, I went to Hollywood, it was disgusting, but, you know, I got to go, the price is right. <laughs> so, you know, at least I opened this store up here. It's a nicer store. Um, I think the nicest store in... God, you're popular. Is, is that phone sex? What's going on now? <laughs> now uh, so basically, th this store I opened it. Um, not only will I be here all the time, but I have a lot of famous friends who will come. So when people come to Hollywood, they can have an experience. At least when they see me, they can say, wow, we saw someone on the news. When you were thinking about places to open the store, um, was Hollywood Boulevard always your choice? Because it's, it's changed a lot over the years you've lived here. I, uh... well, I'll give you the rundown of LA. Being born and raised here, I've seen the evolution of Hollywood. Now, I remember in sixth grade when I was 
skateboard down Hollywood Boulevard and with a bunch of kids and we were rowdy and rude and would like knock ice creams out of people's hands and do obnoxious things. I got my payback for that in prison, so don't worry. It's Hollywood Boulevard when it's not it freaks out. There's very nice people here, for the most part. And for the most part, there's a lot of interesting people here. It's a melting pot. Um, look at Hollywood is where people, it's a fantasy. Dreams yeah. come true. Yeah. Dreams are made. We all grew up to movies. We all fantasize about being something at some point in our life. And hey, I love Hollywood. Yeah. And they named me Hollywood Madam. I was born Heidi. So bottom line is Hollywood Madam, we'll see how long I can last here. Well, you're a piece of Hollywood now. I guess so. You know, piece of Hollywood history. You know, like, uh, you know, entertainers get uh, those stars out yeah. there, and uh, I think I've entertained more than any of them, but it's just not all on film, baby. <laughs> In recent decades, the boulevard has been revitalized as a tourist center, an Epcot for movie fans. They can have a look at the famous Hollywood sign visible from the rear end of the Hollywood and Highland Center Mall. Grab a bite at Dave & Buster's, take a photo with Shrek or some guy dressed as Shrek, and pick up a lipstick at Sephora on their bus tour through Hollywood. The city of Los Angeles would have you believe the heart of Hollywood Boulevard lies in their new snappy acronym for HEART. That's history, economy, arts and architecture, renewal and tradition. But the truth of the street doesn't lie in an acronym or the chain stores or the awkward white elephant sculptures inspired by D.W. Griffith's racist flop intolerance on display at the Hollywood and Highland Shopping Center. Nope, the heart of Hollywood Boulevard is the Frolic Room, a small bar with a giant neon sign located at 6245 Hollywood Boulevard, just east of Vine Street. It's a place that distills down all of what the boulevard represents, success, shattered dreams with equal parts sleaze and glamour. Situated next to the grand Pantages Theater, once the home of the Academy Awards and still one of the leading venues for live theater in Los Angeles, the Frolic Room storefront is humble, but you can't miss the sign. Designed by Larry Grossman at the request of Howard Hughes and hung above the doorway of the Art Deco exterior, the sign is an eye-catcher. Against a background of multicolored crisscrossed bars, the name is spelled out in yellow neon above the word cocktails. Walking down Hollywood Boulevard at night, it's dazzling, drawing your eye towards the otherwise no-frills entryway. A small vestibule leads into the oldest bar in Hollywood, a long, narrow 40-foot by 10-foot space that writer F.J. Lennon said smells as musty as your grandpap's underwear drawer. The eastern wall is festooned with a mural by artist Al Hirschfeld that features caricatures of celebrities like Albert Einstein, Clark Gable, Laurel and Hardy, Marilyn Monroe, and Tallulah Bankhead in full Hollywood Technicolor. On the other side of the room is the bar, long and straight with a dozen or so red pleather stools illuminated by red and white mid-century cool spaceship-style ceiling lights. A jukebox provides the soundtrack. In other words, it's not that different from a thousand other holes in the walls from coast to coast. But it feels different. In a city that's always looking for the next new thing, it's a relic of a different time. Cozy and dark, it takes your eyes a moment to adjust to the dim light as you walk into the bar. The very atmosphere is at odds with the sunny and sprawling California city it calls home. 
Perhaps it feels different because it began life as a speakeasy in 1930, a secret place for vaudevillians who performed at the Pantages to grab some hooch while regular Joe stayed sober during Prohibition. Apparently named after a boulevardier nicknamed Freddy Frolic, there was no front door. Drinkers slipped in and out through a secret passageway in the Pantages Theatre. The passageway is still there, but booze is legal and the frolic room now has a front door, so they use the former secret entranceway as storage. Prohibition, the nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation and sale of alcoholic beverages, went down the drain on December 5th, 1933. The lid is off in many places, with the downfall of Prohibition being celebrated in real old-time hilarity. Yes, and by the renewal of old acquaintances, hotels and nightclubs report a real pre-war spirit among those revelers. Boy! Uh-oh, there'll be no more scenes such as this. Barrel after barrel of prized whiskeys destroyed by government agents. It's going to be a cold winter for the barrel busters. The following year, the former speakeasy, with a new door and a new name, Bob's Frolic Room, opened to the public. These days, the clientele is described by bartender Tarek Martin as, quote, a perfect mix of neighborhood regulars, tourists, and all-round professional drinkers. But in 1934, it was a hangout for Hollywood's beautiful people. Before or after a show at the Pantages, the place rocked crowded with the stars of the day cheek by jowl in the intimate surroundings. But it wasn't just famous folks, at least one customer would go on to become infamous. Like so many others who came to California from Boston, Kalamazoo, Arkadelphia, or wherever else, Elizabeth Short was a Hollywood hopeful. Also, like so many others, she worked as a waitress to support herself while she waited for her big break. A break that never came. She was known as Beth. She was also known to drop by the frolic room from time to time. A number of reports list it as the last place she was seen alive before she was murdered, cut in half and left, nude and posed in a vacant lot on the 3800 block of LA's South Norton Avenue in January 1947, but that has never been confirmed. The press nicknamed Short the Black Dahlia, and the mystery surrounding her case dominated the front pages of every LA newspaper for months. Books have been written, movies made, but no one knows for sure who the killer is. In a sense, the murder of Betty Short is the ultimate example of the dark side of LA. A young woman drawn to the city of angels by the dream it offered. A dream that became a nightmare. Short is now woven into the fabric of Los Angeles history, and Kim Cooper, the historian who runs the Real Black Dahlia Crime Bus Tour, has said that if you want to get a sense of Beth Short's Hollywood to really soak in that atmosphere, you have to go to Michelli's, you have to go to Bordner's, Musso and Frank, and of course, the Frolic Room. In 1949, Two years after the gruesome discovery of Short's body, Howard Hughes bought both the Pantages and the Frolic Room. For the next five years, Hughes and his friends like Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland used the place as an intimate getaway from showier night spots like the Stork Club. Hughes sold off his interest in these side-by-side -side businesses in 1954, but not before securing the Pantages as the home of the Academy Awards. Hollywood's biggest night of the year. The Academy Award Ceremonies at the Pantages Theatre. 
basking in the reflected glow of Oscar gold, the Frolic Room remained packed with stars. In 1963, the Frolic Room got a new look. A drop ceiling brought the 40-foot ceiling down to earth, and the now-familiar red pleather stools and red-and-white mid-century cool spaceship-style ceiling lights were installed. To pay homage to the matinee idols and starlets who sipped gimlets at the bar, new wallpaper designed by celebrity Broadway caricaturist Al Hirschfield was brought in. A reminder of the bar's roots as a celebrity hangout in the heart of Hollywood, it features 25 caricatures of celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable, Albert Einstein, and Groucho Marx. Many certainly had been to the Pantages next door, some had even been to the bar, although it's unlikely that Einstein or Marx ever tippled at the bar. Sharp-eyed customers will notice the name of Hirschfield's daughter Nina in capital letters hidden three times in the wallpaper. The mural is now a bit of a neighborhood landmark and customers treat it with respect, but it hasn't always been that way. The first time it was restored, after years of smoke damage and general wear and tear, owner Robert Nunley trusted the customers would be kind. He was wrong. Patrons defaced the caricatures and marked up the wallpaper. The language wasn't very nice, he says. In 2012, the piece was carefully restored. But this time, Nunley added glass to protect his bar's most distinctive and nostalgic feature. Over the years, celebrities have continued to visit the Frolic Room. In recent years, Brad Pitt and Kiefer Sutherland have been known to prop up the bar. And after his star was laid down on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in front of the Frolic Room, Neil Patrick Harris said, This won't be the first time I've been plastered on the sidewalk in front of the Frolic Room. But nonetheless, it's not like the old days when Frank and Judy would swing by for a smart cocktail before a show at the Pantages. By the 1970s, Hollywood Boulevard was more gritty than glam. The Glitterati would stop by for the occasional premiere at Grauman's or a steak at Musso and Frank, but more often than not, A-listers were found at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where Elizabeth Taylor spent six of her eight honeymoons, or yachting to Catalina Island, a conveniently located Hollywood playground just 22 miles offshore. Back on the boulevard, bell-bottom jeans replaced smart tuxes and gowns as the preferred dress code, and hairstyles were more Rapunzel than Vidal Sassoon. Prostitutes and porn theaters proliferated. Around the corner, the Pussycat Theater showed seminal porno film Deep Throat for a record 10 years upstairs. Well, there it is, you little bugger, there it is. <laughs> what? Well, your clitoris, it's deep down in the bottom of your throat. <laughs> now, now, Miss Lovelace, listen, having a glitter is deep down at the bottom of your throat is better than having no glitter at all. While played host to The Mask, a raucous punk club that featured sets by the Ramones and the Dead Kennedys and frequent police raids. Owner Brendan Mullins said other Hollywood merchants hated him and his club. I was perceived as street riffraff, he says, contributing to the decline of Hollywood Boulevard. Well, they may have had a point. When someone was killed at the mask, the day-glow orange police outline of the body was incorporated as part of the ambience of the place. Elsewhere on the boulevard, massage parlors and dodgy businesses with names like the Institute of Oral Love and the Academy of Nude Wrestling popped up on block after block. 
It was a different time for the frolic room. Gone were the high flyers replaced by high customers attracted by the cheap drinks. It was here that Charles Bukowski, bard of Los Angeles, the poet who gave a slurred voice to the citizens of the dark underbelly of his adopted city, made regular visits. At age 34, Bukowski had a severe hemorrhage and ulcer so acute, doctors told him he'd die if he had another drink. He quit his job, his relationship blew apart, but he kept writing and drinking at the Frolic Room and other Hollywood Boulevard bars that offered hard drinks for hard times. At the Frolic Room, he didn't drink martinis or anything that came in a glass with a stem. He was an American beer man, Miller or Schlitz, right out of the bottle, usually with a shot of whiskey on the side. So you take each day with all the gusto you can, the life you live, the food you enjoy, even in the beer you drink. Why settle for less? When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. American beer had gone downhill since World War II, he always said. But that perceived lack of quality control did not stop him from packing away six or 12 cold ones in an afternoon. Walking into the bar today offers a glimpse into Bukowski's world. The decor hasn't changed that much, although I doubt the autographed photos of John Belushi and Sylvester Stallone were fixtures in Bukowski's day. The bikers who ruled the place in the 1980s and early 90s are gone, but like all places with a storied past, the echoes of days gone by reverberate. It's not glamorous. 90 years of life on the boulevard of broken dreams has imbued the place with an aura of menace. That and the unsolved murder of the dapper doorman Jerry Anderson in 2010. Perhaps that's why it has figured as a location in big screen murder mysteries like LA Confidential and The Black Dahlia. I once took my wife and our friend Angie there for a drink. We had been eating and drinking in the kind of brightly lit places Bukowski would have avoided when I came up with the idea of going to the frolic room. I could sense they were uneasy as we walked into the dimly lit bar, but hey, the bartender's wearing a white shirt and vest, so maybe it's kind of fancy? They're not convinced. There's no room at the bar, so we sit next to the jukebox against the Hirschfield mural. Angie goes to the bar. There's no drink menu and we can't hear what she ordered over the rumble of the jukebox and the chatter, but she comes back with two beers and something in a tall glass. What did you order? I asked. I ordered a triple vodka, she said, and then came the kicker, because I want them to respect me. We ended up staying there, feeding the jukebox with quarters and our faces with drinks, and learned it doesn't take a triple to earn respect at the Frolic Room. Like all great bars, it is an egalitarian place, a truly democratic space where, for the price of a drink, you are welcomed, whether you're Charles Bukowski, Frank Sinatra, or just a thirsty person off the street. It's a classic welcoming place, the way it's always been. If you changed the frolic room, owner Robert Nunley says, I think it would ruin the business. It just works this way. That was Last Call, a history of Bob's frolic room. But stick around, it's time for the after party, where we get to spend a bit more time with T. Cole Newton and F.J. Lennon. F.J. lived in Los Angeles for many years, and in that time was a regular at the frolic room. He's an American novelist, screenwriter, and independent digital media executive producer, designer, and writer. Now, I came across him when I discovered his book, Soul Trapper, a novel featuring Kane Price, a 20-something musician with a self-destructive streak. He's also known as a ghost-hunting legend. And if that wasn't cool enough, he also hangs around at the Frolic Room. 
The book has loads of five-star ratings on Amazon, and it's available in all formats. We began the interview by getting to know Kane Price and F.J. Lennon. I've lived in Los Angeles 17 years and spent a lot of time in Hollywood. And my favorite thing was to go sort of start at Musso and Frank and, uh, you know, have, have something to eat, have some cocktails, talk to Ruben, the bartender there. Um, who was the best bartender in the world. The legendary Ruben, the bartender there. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. and he's a character in my books. So um, so then I would then I would walk down Hollywood Boulevard and end up at the Frolic Room. And, you know, the Frolic Room is just this magical place. And it's, I mean, it's a dive bar for sure, but it's got a past. It's got one of the greatest jukeboxes I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it's not a digital jukebox. It's, you know, the records inside. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it's really an eclectic um, collection of music. And, you know, the whole vibe of it, it's, it's tiny, it's cramped, it's small, it's dingy, but you've got, you know, you've got those Hirschfeld murals in the back, uh, caricatures of, you know, famous legends of Hollywood. And I don't know, there's just something about it that, um, that just exudes uh, Hollywood, you know, old Hollywood, new Hollywood. It's, it is kind of the, the epicenter of it for me. So in creating that character, um, Kane Price, he lives on Yucca Street, which is not, you know, right around the corner. So the character has an apartment in the Halifax apartments and it just makes sense. That's his, that's his kind of place. It's, it's, you know, he's a musician and he's a paranormal ghost hunter. And those are his two passions. And to me, you've, you've got both elements of that right there. It's the frolic room is definitely feels like it's haunted to me. So it was fun for me to sort of go there and picture this guy sitting next to me and think, and sort of bring that character to life. Well, I love that uh, you say that it, it it feels like the history of Los Angeles is there. Well, it started off as a speakeasy. I don't know if you know all this. And it started off as a speakeasy. Didn't have a front door for four years. It was uh, only accessible through the Pantages Theater, through a passageway. So the actors on their breaks or whatever could, could come in and have a drink during Prohibition. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until four years after that, 1934, that they actually put in the front door. But what I didn't realize on all the times that I've been there is that the ceiling that's there is a drop ceiling. It used to have 40-foot ceilings and was uh, a, a place that looked and felt, I think, remarkably different than it does today, uh, even though the last renovation was in 1963. Uh, before that, it had been you know, a hangout where Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland used to go for smart cocktails. But uh, I think I prefer it now. I love the vibe in that room because it feels like uh, the last democratic place where you can sit down no matter who you are and for the price of a drink, you fit in. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I've, I've heard the stories about Sinatra used to have an Oscar after party there. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of just, you know, so, so it has that prestige to it. It has that vibe to it. But, you know, on any given night you go in there, you could be sitting next to a junkie, uh, a, you know, a hooker, uh, a movie star, uh, everything in between. And everybody is is pretty cool, you know. Um, 
the, you know, the bartender is a, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He, he runs a good tight ship, but you know, people don't get out of hand. Then. I mean, um, it's always like this weird mixture of people that seem to cohabitate pretty peacefully. And I don't know that you have that anywhere else. You know, a lot of people I've taken there get really like scared, you know, they're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're sort of, they're, you know, there are always a few shady characters in there, you know, um, always. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're all there, you know, looking for the same thing. Right, a common purpose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've often told a story, and I tell it on this podcast, where the first time that I took my friend Angie there, my wife was with me, neither of them had ever been. And then we sat on the, the chairs, the bar was full, we sat on the chairs by the mural. And uh, she went to the bar and ordered a, two beers. And then she came back and had a big glass in her hand. And I said, what did you have? And she said, I ordered a triple because I want them to respect me. <laughs> <laughs> and, it yeah, does and maybe it's because you're walking in from, you know, if you go in the afternoon, as we did, you're walking in from the great California sunshine and your eyes really have to adjust when you yeah. walk in through that vestibule. They do. They do. If you walk in there in the daytime, it is it is a it is a different experience. It feels so dark when you walk in. And yeah. It takes the eyes that time to adjust, um, and it's just the greatest uh, neon sign. Yeah, I think in Hollywood. You know, I mean, Tarantino showed it several times in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it. I mean, to me, it's like the iconic. Um, you know, it's the iconic sign. I I have it. You know on my laptop here on a sticker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I love that sign. That's how I found the bar. I didn't know anything about it. I was just walking down Hollywood Boulevard one day and I saw this sign. And I thought any place that has a sign that great has to be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's timeless. I mean, I, it, it just doesn't change. I mean, at least in the 17 years I was there, there was never a change made. And I don't know, I find a mirror to be a weird you know, you sit there and you drink and that you're, you're staring at yourself <laughs> and the eye does funny things in there, you know, and again, I go back to the haunted, you know, the haunted feeling in there. And I've seen weird things in that mirror. I don't know if it's the Jameson or, <laughs> um, or the, or the spirits of Hollywood, but I've, I've had a few weird, you know, um, vibes in that place, you know? So, um, so that mirror to me is something you got to you got to gaze into it cautiously. Right, know? right. You yeah, be careful because you might see things you don't want to see. Yeah. In yourself, within yourself and then maybe spiritually as well. Well, the, yeah. the legend is that Howard Hughes who owned the bar uh many years ago uh can be seen in the mirror every now and again. Mm -hmm. Uh and I I it's been people have told me they've seen it and then others have said, "Oh, that's a bunch of hogwash." Where yeah. do you fall on that line? I, I I tell you what, if you if you stare at that mirror, um, you'll see things in it. I I don't I never saw Howard Hughes, but right. I've seen, especially if you sort of stare at yourself, things happen, you know. Um, so I definitely think that there's there are spirits there are spirits all over Hollywood Boulevard, but I I think that place is just a magnet for it, you know. So and but it's good, you know. They're they're it's it's a good place. I think it's one of those places I always felt like um, 
if you if you find your way there authentically, then you belong there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it calls out and sees who you know who will who will take the bait, who will come. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think life becomes interesting by at for you at you know once you've once that place has blessed you. You know, I, I just call me a romantic Hollywood guy, but I, I believe that. You know. Well, I, 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 and I love that it has changed as Hollywood Boulevard has changed. There's not that much left. Musso and Frank up the road and, and the Pig and Whistle is closed now, I think. And there's a number of places around it that were roughly around the same vintage, but I think most of them are gone now. Uh, but the Frolic Room has changed with the neighborhood. It has uh, started as a, a place of glamour, a place of sort of at first with the speakeasy and then, you know, sort of a glamorous place. And then as Hollywood Boulevard changed, it was a biker bar for a while. It's, it's changed all over the place. And it's that great adaptability that maybe is what you're talking about while it has such a kind of a spiritual feel because everyone from all walks of, of society have walked through that door at some point over, you know, the last, uh, you know, 90 years. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, like they have that picture of John Belushi over the bar, you know, and he was there right before he died, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, you know, it's also that jukebox. I can go in there and put a $5 bill in and I can play songs for, you know, 90 minutes. Yeah. And they're all my songs, you know? And, um, and, you know, I've, no one seems to get annoyed, you know, if you, play your music versus theirs everybody kind of if you got there and it's your you know it's your cycle of songs um people are pretty pretty cool and receptive to it i'll I'll just ask you one more thing about uh your description of the place in soul trapper the novel Mm -hmm. and i love this line smells as musty as your grandpap's underwear drawer (laughs) and you know if i was to think of a way to describe what happens when you walk in there, because I talk about it in the podcast about your eyes having to adjust and it feels like, you know, like you're, you're really entering somewhere different. Uh, but that smell is something that I, I, I wasn't quite able to figure out how to describe until I read that line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know if it comes from the restrooms or <laughs> if it works its way into the restrooms, but it seems like they, you know, either they don't use disinfectant or no amount of disinfectant will get it out. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a unique odor, you know, and it is old. It is old, you know, it's, it's a bit like a tomb. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I was, in, I went to Egypt once and I was in tombs and it was like, that's kind of the closest uh, I've, I've gotten to the frolic room, you know, it's uh and you it's describe old. it as a mecca of shattered dreams as well, which is such a fantastic uh, turn of phrase to talk about this place where Charles Bukowski used to drink, where you know people who are on the way up and down used to drink. And I often think of of Hollywood as kind of the the uh, or being emblematic of that. You know, people yeah. are there with dreams, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And you know, you'll meet those people at that bar at the Frolic. It's it's weird to see a true story. One night I was there, and there was a guy sitting next to me at the bar, and he was he was a he was a kind of an actor stand up comic, and he was a bit of a loose cannon, and um, and you could tell, you know, he had issues. He had issues, and 
Um, but at the same time, in the very corner by the murals and the chairs, was, it was Brad Pitt just sitting by himself, drinking bourbon. Right. And um, just sitting there by himself. This is probably, I don't know, 2005 or six, right. maybe four. And um, it's funny because that guy that, you know, I connected with that guy on Facebook I was sitting next to, he ended up committing suicide years later. And, you know, it's, it's just what you said. You're on the way up or the way down. And that night represented both. I mean, Brad Pitt was already big then. Yeah. But he's gotten even bigger, you know, and nothing can stop that train um, from going up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are a lot of people at one o'clock in the morning in the frolic room on a weeknight that are, you know, that are hurting, you know. Um, so you just got to respect all of that, you know, and, uh, and accept it all. It's and just, I, I think that's what makes it a, a great dive bar. Yeah, is, truly. You know, as a, that's when I, when I say it's a, the, the last great democratic place, these dive bars, because everyone's welcome, no matter who you are. And I love that about it. And I love that about the frolic room. Yeah. And, and it's still, it still continues to have that mystique. I know the doorman was, was, was murdered a, uh, yeah. like a few years back. And I think that's still an unsolved murder in Hollywood. It is. As far as I was able to find. Yeah. It was a, it was a closing time. I mean, that guy, I knew that guy, he was always there. And between the time the bartender went to lock up the back room and it came out, someone killed him. And, uh, you know, off in the night they go. So there, there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's still, there's still stories left to be told, you know? Um, and I don't think that place will ever die. No, nope, I, you know? I don't see if it can uh, last through uh, well, the, if, if it can start in prohibition and last through a pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's good to go. I think. Yeah. I think it is too. I think it's, you know, even Moose on Frank, you know, like it's, it's still timeless, but it, you know, they used to have the back room. They don't have that anymore. Things have, things have changed, you know, it's still, but it's still, if those, those are the bookends to me, if they're, if they're there, Hollywood's there. Yeah. And if you have the sign between them up on the hill, then you're good. Yeah. Any of those go, you know, I don't know, aliens are coming or the world's going to end or, you know, <laughs> California's going into the sea or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah, to me, that, that, that's always my, you know, those are the bedrocks. That was F.J. Lennon. Find his book, Soul Trapper, wherever you buy fine books. Next, let's meet T. Cole Newton. He runs two successful bars in New Orleans, 12 Mile Limit and The Domino, and he's the author of Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History, and Questionable Advice from New Orleans' 12 Mile Limit. It's a deep dive into the world of cocktail lore, classic recipes, and hard-won wisdom. We talked about dive bars, drinks, and much, much more. Here's T. Cole Newton. Your bars in Louisiana aren't exactly dive bars. They are bars that have great cocktails, uh, but they have a community feel to them. And I think that's one of the things that make dive bars dive bars is that the regulars generally speaking tend to know one another uh they tend to go to the same place over and over again it's one of the many elements that makes a great dive bar uh does that ring true to you yeah i think that's pretty accurate it's the dive bar 
sort of, I don't want to say ethos, but the one of the, a dive bar is one of those things like, like pornography. You kind of know when you see it, there's no standard definition. I don't want to, I don't want to create the impression that I'm somehow like, I wrote a book about dive bars because I own something that I consider to be a dive bar, but not everyone considers it to be a dive bar. And it's a nebulous term. There's not like a concrete thing. But I think one of the common factors that people identify with dive bars seems to be that what you're describing is that it's a, it's a community hub in a way that it's, it's sort of, it, it, there's an, a dynamic interplay between the neighborhood in which the bar is situated and the bar itself. And it becomes sort of a, a, a gathering place and an extension of people's homes in a very real and meaningful way that people feel like they are at home when they are at their neighborhood dive bar. Yeah, I always think of them as that third space. We have our workspace, we have our home space, and then for some people, the third space is a gym or a coffee shop or whatever it may be. But a bar to me is the third space. It is a place that fulfills parts of the need that you have in your life uh, in ways that goes just beyond booze. And mm -hmm. uh, for some people, it's about the booze. But uh, for other people, it is just about being part of a thing in the neighborhood and having a place to go where people are going to be nice to you, generally speaking. <laughs> by and large although i do think there is some uh, a, a lot of bars top like different types of bars i'll feel all fall victim to this dive bars aren't um excluded is that there is sometimes a real air of exclusivity like if you walk into a dive bar for the first time and you don't know everyone else there yeah. and you might get a little side eye from the bar it's like oh who's this noob you know there's there can be a bit and you, you have to break into that club a little bit sometimes yeah. in dive bars and there's different like every type like if you're in a sports bar there's a cult of exclusivity around being knowledgeable about sports if you're in a cocktail bar there's a cult of exclusivity about being um knowledgeable about cocktails same with a wine bar there's sort of an assumed knowledge and the assumed knowledge in a dive bar is the community that you're that you should know everyone there that like if, if a bartender doesn't already know your name, are you really going to be made to feel welcome? And a good dive bar, yeah, or a good bar of any kind, you can break through that and make it an accessible experience for people, regardless of the knowledge they come in the door with. Um, but not everyone feels welcome immediately in a bar that they haven't been in, if it's in someone else's neighborhood. Your bars have incredible cocktail lists. They're in Louisiana, and, uh, and you have uh, two of them. There's a 12-mile limit in the Domino. Um, now, do you, I mean, your book is called Cocktail Dive Bar. Do you consider them dive bars that just happen to have great cocktail lists? Yeah, I think more so for 12 Mile Limit than the mm -hmm. Domino, because the Domino was was built eight years after 12 Mile Limit. It was, it was a white box build out. So it was in a space that was basically empty. We built the bar from the ground up in that space to, to spec. Uh, you know, you, you're dealing with some, you know, it's, it's New Orleans. So the plumbing is, it's charmingly antiquated and we had to make some design adjustments on the fly, but it's, yeah. it was a holistic vision that we realized with the idea of creating a dive bar. And one of I'd like, I don't know if you can create a dive bar intentionally. It's sort of a thing that grows organically and 12 mile limit because of the nature of the beast, instead of doing that white box build out, it was a hermit crab project. We had, I found a bar for sale embedded in a neighborhood. Um, which is a dying breed because everything is being pushed towards nightlife districts and sort of mm -hmm. away from embedded neighborhood bars. And I just, I changed as much as I had to and as much as I could afford to up front, made it a little bit nicer than it was when I bought it. Um, but it was still just the, I didn't even, I didn't even really expect it to take off as a cocktail bar at the time. I was expecting I would just make my money off of neighborhood regulars and video poker. 
and uh, the cocktail is because that's where my 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 personal my professional background was in cocktail. It was like, okay, well, you know, if I want anyone to come to this bar, I should be leaning into the the reputation that I already have. So it's like, all right, we're in this very rundown building in a part of town that was still in transition. Um, and after Katrina, right? This is, this is yeah. The, the, the building had taken a lot of water during Katrina. It would any any reasonable like somebody who was not a like starry-eyed 20-something <laughs> aspiring bartender it was like, oh yeah, sure, I could do this. Like any reasonable assessor and with a good business sense would have just torn the building down and built some build a couple of condos or something like that, you know. Uh, but I was I'm not actually that good at business, which in the long term has worked out for me <laughs> because I just kept it as a bar. And because it was such a different project and because like the cocktails were like people showed up for the cocktails, but it was never never foundational to what I wanted the bar to be, which was just a, like a community space. People can come get a drink, hang out, watch TV, just be in a friendly environment uh, where they would feel welcome and at home. So I think organically 12 Mile Limit is much more of a, of a dive bar. The Domino, again, is like, I'm also able to apply at the time, eight years of, of like, I didn't know what I was doing by the time the Domino rolled around. Like I knew how to write a business plan and do projections and all these other things. I was like, I just was winging it at 12 Mile um so it's and I, and we aspire to a to a similar style of service but i don't know that we can really claim a dive bar status the way that 12 file can and again mm -hmm. it's just sort of organic you, you don't you don't choose that identity people sort of decide that for you to a certain extent it, absolutely i mean i think like the frolic room in los angeles it became a dive bar over time simply because the the neighborhood changed around it didn't start off that way, but all of a sudden bikers are hanging out at the bar and it's, it's a much different, it, be, it took on a much different vibe. Um, when you go to one of your bars, or let's, let, let's stick with 12 mile limit uh, for now, what would you order? I know you don't drink that much. Uh, or... Yeah, I, I had my share, I like to say. I drank very, very heavily for about uh, 15 to 30. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and nowadays when I go, sometimes I'll have a drink, um, but more often than not, I'll drink a fake beer. That's my go-to order right now. We, we carry O'Doul's at the Domino. We carry um, Heineken Zero uh, at, at 12 Mile. Um, and that's, that's my go-to. Uh, or like a soda water, soda and bitters. It probably has about the same amount of alcohol in it as, a, as one of those zero-proof beers. Uh, that's sort of where I'm at. If I do feel like a cocktail, it's usually something in the, uh, the old-fashioned sphere. Right. And the, the drinks from what I've learned from your book, the, the drinks are kind of riffs on old fashioned kind of cocktails. I didn't get the sense that you are one of those bars that is using um, eyedroppers to make your drinks <laughs> and that kind of thing. But the drinks are very good. They, but they are, they are uh, of mostly of your own invention and they're kind of riffs on drinks that, that we might be familiar with. Yeah, I feel like ultimately there's like, four or five templates that we use when, and, and not necessarily even by design, like people will build these cocktails. A lot of the drinks now are, are other bartenders at 12 mile limit that develop. But the, I would say that our, our, our menu is probably like 80, 90% house original cocktails, 90, 10, 20% uh, like obscure classics. Right. Um, and the originals though, they tend to fall into one, like a few different categories. So you got your, your like your old fashioned variations, uh, you know, boozy bitters, big, big ice rock. Yep. You got your sours, um, shake, serve on the rock, serve it up, whatever. 
and then sort of your longer drinks so you can basically build in the glass top it with something fizzy um and with or without ice and it's like it's in a fluid or it's in a collins glass but those are like so maybe three <laughs> like we got like three different variations and but within each of those templates the variety can be infinite like any of those any of those builds can be used in uncountable ways and and but it allows us to do things like we're not using eyedroppers no because i think building cocktail recipes that have sort of a a we, we batch primarily i didn't i don't talk about this a ton in the book I, I think i allude to it a little bit um but you can build like if you're if you're measuring out 100 ounces of something and you're off by an ounce which is not hard to do uh, uh you're still only off by one percent whereas if you're measuring a quarter ounce ounce of something and you're off by a 16th of an ounce you're off by 25 percent. so you're allowed it's you're able to do that sort of micro level accuracy in your cocktails without sacrificing speed if anything it increases the speed the only thing you're really sacrificing is something that people in a cocktail dive bar for lack of a better term um I understand, but for lack of a better term, I'm kind of hanging my professional identity on that concept right now. So the idea of a cocktail dive bar that you're sacrificing when you're batching cocktails, or and not even batching them all the way, but we batch the shelf-stable ingredients, your bitters, your syrups, your liqueurs, your cordials, that kind of thing. Um, and then we're adding anything fizzy and any fresh juice is added to order. Right. So the guest still sees you, you know, pull two things, mix them together, shake them. And that's what they want to see. People don't necessarily care. Most of the, even in fancy cocktail bars, most of the guests don't care about watching the cocktail be built from the ground up with micro level precision. They want the drink made thoughtfully. They want the drink to be good. They want, they, but they, like, nobody cares how the sausage is made. Except there, there, there are guests in that context, in the fancy cocktail bars that do, that want to see it built from the ground up. They want to see people using tiny little measuring spoons and all those the little things. And that's great for, the, for bars that want to do that. Um, but that's one of the reasons we're not a full-fledged, like really sophisticated cocktail bar is because you sacrifice a lot of efficiency at the altar of this presentation that even in those contexts, the majority of your guests probably don't care about and would rather have the same drink faster without the show. Well, so that's we'll just it give it to me. them faster. We charge that's less for it that way too. Well, that's it for me. I tended bar for 17 years, but I was uh, a bang it out kind of guy. I just, uh, it was beers and shots. And those are the kind of bars that I worked in for a very long time. And uh, when I go to places that I call eyedropper bars, I just don't want to wait. I don't want to wait that long for a drink. And, and I always think about myself as the bartender behind the bar thinking I could have sold three drinks in the time it's taken me to do this. So I'm not making money. The bar is not making money. And mm -hmm. for me, um, there is a level of skill to it and I, I appreciate it, but it's not for me. That's why these bars are so often lost leaders for larger bar, bar groups. Right. It's like they're not—they're not built to make money. They're built to impress guests. Right. And right. Uh, and and again, if you've got a large bar group, that's great. But Twelve Mile can't, like that was my only bar for eight years. I couldn't. Like <laughs> <laughs> it had to be the profit center and the showpiece. You know. Right. So one of the things that I, I took away from uh, reading the book and, and looking at some of the ingredients that you use is there are kind of dive bar ingredients in some of your fancy uh, cocktails. And I'm thinking of uh, Malort, Jepson's <laughs> Malort. And I've never had it. It's a Chicago thing. I'm in Toronto. So we, it, we don't get a lot of Malort here, or a lot of, uh, of that particular brand of Malort. And I looked it up online and the the slogans that people have come up with like malort from when your pants aren't going to shit themselves and that kind of thing that always <laughs> kind of made me laugh while i was looking through them um but was that part of the ethos of, of putting some of these drinks together 
Yeah, I think one of our first cocktails on our original cocktail list, there was sort of a, the cornerstone of our cocktail program for a long time were two drinks. One was called, one's called the Bowden, 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 Bowden. It's a spicy gold rush variation, essentially whiskey, honey, lemon, and Tabasco. The other one is called the Great Idea. And the Great Idea was a, a drink built both to showcase vodka as a as a reasonable component in in fancy drinks because this was you know this is 10 years ago when vodka was like oh vodka pays the bills but we don't we don't actually want to carry vodka it was like i guess we have to have you know yeah it doesn't taste like anything but people drink it yeah yeah like okay sure so but like no vodka vodka has a has really impressive mixological applications in a lot of in a lot of ways and so doing that and then the other it was a split based cocktail with vodka and Jägermeister. Mm -hmm. And so and hence the name, oh, vodka and Jägermeister together. That seems like a great idea. Um, <laughs> but I, the idea of like sort of reclaiming some of the like we have hypnotic cocktails before hypnotic sort of became ironically trendy right. with Jäger cocktails, cocktails that call for like orange crush. Like these are not fancy things but you can use like they're still delicious <laughs> these are all quality ingredients they're just they've reputationally they've suffered over the years but yeah from the onset i wanted to sort of create to carve out that space where like we want to take a a less elitist view of some of of the institution of cocktails because I, th I think that was where we were sort of on the cutting edge and i didn't even think about it at the time that what i was doing was really opening up room for cocktails to be less of an elitist enterprise. I think that was really holding back the, it drove the industry for a long time. I think in the first, first decade of the 20th century, I think a lot of the growth in appreciation for cocktails is because people were taking it so seriously, right. but then it started to eat its own tail. It became that Ouroboros and it was like, it, the, the seriousness with which people were taking cocktails became a detriment to cocktail growth. And the idea, like, we, we really want to reach people. You got, you can't just do it in cocktail bars. You can't do it in places where it's super serious. You got to be able to create a world where people can go into their average neighborhood bar and get a reasonably well-made old fashioned or a sports bar or an Applebee, you know, wherever you drink, oh, yeah. wherever regular people, regular people drink, those places should be able to make cocktails too. And divorcing the cocktail experience from fancy restaurants and fancy bars uh, was sort of was important to me, but I didn't I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I wouldn't have been able to articulate this then. Um, but a lot of like places like Holiday in New York, there's a lot of places that have have really followed that that lead of creating fun, interesting, eclectic, affordable bar spaces that just also happen. Bonus to have really well considered cocktail like they've just all you know you don't really need a cocktail program exactly. You just need a, a competent bartender. Like right. the ingredients are usually already there. One of the things I took away from the book was how thoughtful you are in terms of, and you've just said it wasn't the plan originally, but it, you've grown up <laughs> around it, I guess. And over the 12 years uh, since uh, 12 Mile Limit opened, um, you've become very thoughtful about the business itself and about protecting customers uh, and, and uh, women that come into the bar and how bartenders and, and the restaurant industry needs to be more of an ally uh, in terms of moving forward. And tell me a little bit about how those thoughts started to formulate in your head and and uh, eventually result in all the writing you've done, including Cocktail Dive Bar. I, I feel like I came into the, the bar world as um, I was looking, I, I came down to New Orleans to do volunteer work. So I, was, I was with AmeriCorps for a year. I was looking at grad school to do public administration because I wanted to move up in the nonprofit world. And I'm, I'm 
bleeding heart. You know, like I never, never met a, a, a cause I, I didn't want to get behind. Um, but I recognized also that, you know, as, as good as I try to be as, as a person, as I move through the world and like try to make the world a little bit of a better place to the extent that I can, I recognize that bars and restaurants, they are often notoriously um, energy inefficient. Uh, the environmental impact is very strong. The alcohol is almost inextricably linked to sexual violence in a lot of ways. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to blame drinking or alcohol for sexual violence, but it, there's, a, there's a connection there. Um, and, and specifically to my experience that, that buying a bar in a, in a neighborhood that was mostly people of color and lo mostly lower middle class when I bought the bar and recognizing that I've accelerated the process of gentrification in the, in the neighborhood that it inhabits, I think there's a lot of negative consequences of, of being in this industry. And I think that's true probably of any industry. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're approaching it uncritically, then everyone is capable of doing great harm. Uh, and if you're, but if you're approaching it critically, like bars, in addition to being places where, where sexual violence is often per perpetuated, they are gathering places for adults to, to meet. And, and, you know, we, we do nonprofit fundraisers. We, we, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways we engage with our community in a positive way. Um, but recognizing the harm that even if it, it even if it's not, if, uh, alcohol is poisonous. Alcohol is a dangerous and addictive substance and it ruins lives. Um, and just being the kind of bar where we care, you know, it's like, and, and it, but also I think it's important to have a light hand. Like we can't always be, we can't be the nanny bar, right? Like nobody wants to drink at a place where people are like, are you sure you want another? You know, it's like <laughs> you, you gotta give people enough slack that they don't feel like they're being judged for the choices that they've made. Um, Cause then they'll just go drink somewhere else. And mm -hmm. the other place that they'll go drink probably won't care as much as we do um, about, and, and part of that's because it's the community. It's like we see a lot of these people every day. Um, so yeah, recognizing that they're in so many different ways. Alcohol is a real slippery slope, uh, both as a professional uh, pursuit and, and as just a, a recreational tool. Um, so just knowing that, being aware of that, um, and and working as actively as we can to mitigate those negative consequences of the of the career that I that I wound up in. Like I I, I as much as possible I want to be able to pursue what I moved here to do, which is mm -hmm. sort of like help <laughs> uh, to do to lean it. Like I, the, I'm good at making drinks. It's not something that I derive a lot of uh, like emotional satisfaction from those. Like if I make a great cocktail, it's like it feels nice. It tastes good. People enjoy it, and I and that that's good. But it's not like I haven't moved the needle on on on, on global progress. You're not changing that. the world with it, but yeah. But if I do, but if I use that to draw people to a space where we can engage in a thoughtful way about these, you know, about conversations about sexual violence in bars mm -hmm. generally, then maybe I have. Sure. So by leaning into an aptitude, I have opened up. And I honestly, I'm I I probably have more of an impact now as, as like I'm a business owner, I'm a property owner. I, I can go to the city council meetings and say, hey, I own a bar in your, your district, mm -hmm. you know, council person, and I'm going to be listened to, and, and also just recognize my privilege as, as a white man, um, that I'm going to be, and a, you know, property owner, like all these different layers of privilege that I have, I have a lot of power that, that I can use, and it's probably more than I would have if I was just like a mid-level cog in some local nonprofit organization. Right. So being able to follow that, the, like the strengths that I had in the service industry and my natural 
aptitude to for making drinks and recognizing that and figuring out how how do I use this this aptitude towards the goals that I actually care about is something that I've I've tried to approach that critically as well. What would you say is the difference between a dive bar and a regular bar? We touched on it at the beginning, uh, or is there a difference? It's it's again kind of an amorphous thing, but uh, is there one or two things that you could say? Oh, well, this is the difference. I think if you're for a to be a real dive bar, again, I, I think it's it's a nebulous concept. It's a, it's tricky to really pin down. I think the, the relationship with the community is a big mm -hmm. part. Uh, that that you're not there to watch sports specifically. I mean, maybe you are that night, but like yeah. the generally like you would go even if this, there weren't sports on. You would go even if uh, you didn't feel like drinking a fancy cocktail. You'd go like you, because it, it's about the community that you've built more than it is about any specific theme that right. you're trying to lean into. Um, so I think a, almost a lack of a theme is is sort of endemic to a good, although some, some of them like the sign will say sports bar, then you go inside, they got like two dirty old TVs that <laughs> barely right. get any channels. It's like, <laughs> oh, sports bar, fun. Okay, I, I like it here. Um, but I think that that's part of it. The, 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 the relationship with the community is the, is the closest thing that it really has to a theme. Um, but I think approachability i think the price mm -hmm. point is is important that it can't you can't be priced out uh and that that's different it's like i'm not saying that what we charge for a pbr is what a dive bar in manhattan should charge for a pbr but i think it should be cheaper than what you know a cocktail bar in manhattan <laughs> would charge for their baseline lager whatever yeah, they yeah. choose to serve um so i think it's got to be it should be an approachable and accessible space that's that's really oriented to the community i think if 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 there is a way to boil it down I always think uh, a couple of things. Price point is one of them. So when you order two beers and they put it down and say, that will be $6. And you say, I wanted to pay for both of them. And they say, that <laughs> is for both. You know, <laughs> that is for both. That's one thing. And uh, we went into uh, a very divey and beautiful bar in Las Vegas years ago. And uh, as we walked, the bar was full. And as we walked down the, the the length of the bar to get the two last stools on the end, I counted at least two people that only had one leg. And I thought, <laughs> this is it. This is my dive bar right here. Yeah, I think that, that that's sort of a mantra too. It's like, it's, you take all, and that's what I mean by like approachable and accessible. Yeah. Is that like, it's not, there's not a specific group of people that is is drawn to it. It's like, it takes all kinds. Yeah. We, we, like your your shell shocked vets, your um your your laborers, your the lawyers and like doctors of the community, every, from top to bottom. If if you can feel like there's a place for you here, then that that's what we aspire to at least. And I always think and say that I think bars are the last truly democratic place. Doesn't matter who you are for the price of a drink, you can be there. You can belong. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty inviting club, or it should be. Yeah, cool. Thanks so much. What a pleasure to yeah. speak to you. Congratulations on the book. Thank and you. I appreciate you giving me yeah. a chance to talk it up. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I it, it, I I love to that because I've done this on this podcast where not all the history is absolutely 100% accurate because <laughs> after a few drinks, you know, stories get told and things change a little bit. And, and I love the idea that it's, you know, a little bit of fake history, some questionable advice. I, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect companion 
I think, uh, for, uh, you know, someone who enjoys going to bars and someone who enjoys that kind of life. I, I, I think it's a, a fascinating and very cool book. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, I wanted to, I, I, again, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I knew what I was doing when I set out to write the book. But yeah. once I started, like I got this alphabetical list of cocktails, as yeah. soon as I got to like the aviation, which for a while was the first cocktail in the book, I was like, what am I going to say about this drink right. that hasn't been said already? So it's like, you know what? Something different. <laughs> like, that, that's where, and that was it. As soon as I got there, I was like, oh, the rest of this book is going to be going to be something different. Yeah. Um, but it just, it wouldn't have felt right if we just had another like dense, lushly photographed, self-serious cocktail yeah. tome. Uh, like we needed, like this, that's not who we are. And I wanted, the, I wanted the book to reflect the, the sort of fun, jaunty, frivolous, doesn't take itself too seriously, but we can have some serious conversations while we're at it kind of vibe that, that I'm going for with the bar. And I really do think the book represents the bar better than I thought I was even going to be able to, to have it do. That was T. Cole Newton. If you're ever in New Orleans, visit his bars, 12 Mile Limit and the Domino. And if you're not in Louisiana, buy his book, Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History and Questionable Advice from New Orleans 12 Mile Limit. My thanks to Bob's Frolic Room for always being there and to F.J. Lennon and T. Cole Newton for their observations and hard-won wisdom. The Frolic Room doesn't have a website, but if you find yourself in Los Angeles, make your way to 6245 Hollywood Boulevard, just east of Vine Street. Have a drink and tell them Richard sent you. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we have a look at another of the world's great bars. I'm Richard Krause. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>